my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. But for a period of 13 years, I was able to give a good part of my time and attention to these serious studies. And when I was 24, I took the preliminary examination at each of the three monastic universities. These examinations are always in the form of congregational debates. The rules of procedure are simple but dignified. Each student has to face a large number of opponents who choose whatever subject and whatever disputable point they think necessary to defeat their adversary and all the standard works of Indian and Tibetan scholars as well as Lord Buddha's words embodied in the sutras are quoted to refute the contentions of the opposing party. At each of my preliminary examinations, I had to compete with 15 learned scholars in these debates three for each of the five treatises and defend my thesis and reviewed their arguments. Then I had to stand before two very erudite abbots and initiate a dialectical discussion on any of the five principal subjects. In all these debates, strong formal gestures are made to emphasize each point, so that the arguments appear like battles of intellect, which indeed they are. A year later, I appeared for my final examination during the annual Mulam festival in Lhasa, when many thousands of monks come into the city to attend the special Buddhist festival of prayer, which is held in the first month of each year. This examination was held in three sessions. In the morning, I was examined on pramana or logic by 30 scholars turn by turn in congregational discussion. In the afternoon, 15 scholars took part as my opponents in the debate on Madhyamika, the middle path, and Prangyaparamitra, the perfection of wisdom. In the evening, there were 35 scholars to test my knowledge of Vinaya, the canon of monastic discipline, and Abhidharma, the study of metaphysics. And at each session, hundreds of learned lamas in their brilliant red and yellow robes my own tutors anxiously among them, and thousands of monks sat round us on the ground, eagerly and critically listening. I found these examinations extremely difficult because I had to concentrate so hard on the subject with which I was dealing, and had to be so prompt in answering any questions. Several hours of debate seemed like an instant. Of course, I was proud and happy to be taking the final examination and to receive the degree of Master of Metaphysics after so many years of studying the great teachings of Lord Buddha. But I knew that there is really no end to one's need for continual learning until one can reach the highest stages of spiritual attainment. Such a religious training, in my view, brings a certain unique equanimity of mind. The practical test comes when occasions of sorrows or suffering arise. The person whose mind is conditioned by the study and practice of religion faces these circumstances with patience and forbearance. The person who does not follow the path of religion may break under the impact of what he regards as calamities and may end in either self-frustration or else in pursuits which inflict unhappiness on others. 
humanitarianism and true love for all beings can only stem from an awareness of the content of religion. By whatever name religion may be known, its understanding and practice are the essence of a peaceful mind and therefore of a peaceful world. If there is no peace in one's mind, there can be no peace in one's approach to others and thus no peaceful relations between individuals or between nations. Here I must give a brief explanation of our beliefs and the significance of my position as the Dalai Lama because these beliefs had a most profound influence on all that I did and all that our people did when our time of trouble came. But I must also add that this is impossible to describe the complexities of the Buddhist doctrine in a few lines and so I shall not try to indicate more than the general trend of it for the sake of those to whom it is quite unfamiliar. We believe with good reason that all human beings of various forms, both animal and human, are reborn after death. In each life the proportion of pain and joy which they experience is determined by their good or evil deeds in the life before. Although they may modify the proportion of their efforts in this present life, this is known as the law of karma. Beings may move up or down in the cure realms, for example from animal to human life or back. Finally, by virtue and enlightenment, they will achieve nirvana when they cease to be reborn. Within nirvana, there are stages of enlightenment. The highest of all the perfection of enlightenment is Buddhahood. Belief in rebirth should engender a universal love for all living beings and creatures and, in the course of their numberless lives and our own, have been our beloved parents, children, brothers, sisters and friends. And the virtues our creed encourages are those which arise from this universal love, tolerance, forbearance, charity, kindness, compassion. Incarnations are beings who have either achieved various stages of nirvana or have achieved the highest stage below nirvana, the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and Arahats. They are reincarnated in order to help other beings to rise towards nirvana and by doing so the Bodhisattvas are themselves helped to rise to Buddhahood and the Arahats also reach Buddhahood finally. Buddhas are reincarnated solely to help others. Since they themselves have already achieved the highest of all levels, they are not reincarnated through any active volition of their own. Such an active mental process has no place in nirvana. They are reincarnated rather by the innate wish to help others through which they have achieved Buddhahood. Their reincarnations occur whenever conditions are suitable and do not mean that they leave their state in nirvana. In simile, it is rather as reflections of the moon may be seen on earth in placid lakes and seas when conditions are suitable, while the moon itself remains in its course in the sky. By the same simile, the moon may be reflected in many different places at the same moment and a Buddha may incarnate simultaneously in many different bodies. All such incarnate beings, as I have already indicated, can influence by their own wishes in each life, 
place and time when they will be reborn and after each birth they have a lingering memory of their previous life which enables others to identify them. I worked hard at my religious education as a boy but my life was not all work. I am told that some people in other countries believe that the Dalai Lamas were almost prisoners in the Potala Palace. It is true that I could not go out very often because of my studies, but a house was built for my family between the Potala and the city of Lhasa, and I saw them at least every six months or six weeks, so that I was not entirely cut off from my family life. Indeed, I saw my father very often for one of the minor daily ceremonies, either in the Potala or the Nobilinga, the summer palace, was the morning tea ceremony when all the monk officials met for their early bowls of tea and both my father and I often attended this meeting. Despite our changed circumstances, he still kept up his interest in horses. He would still go out to feed his own horses every morning before he took any food himself and now that he could afford it, he gave them eggs and tea to strengthen them. And when I was in the summer palace, where the Dalai Lama's stables were situated, and my father came to see me there, I think he often went to call on my horses before he came to call on me. About a year after we arrived in Lhasa, my elder sister came to join us, and then my eldest brother left the monastery at Kumbum and came to Lhasa too, so that we were all united again. Soon after my elder sister arrived, my younger sister was born, and after her a baby boy. We were all very fond of this baby, and it delighted me to have a younger brother. But to our grief, he died when he was only two years old. It was a grief only too familiar to my parents, because so many of their children had already died. But a curious thing happened on the death of the baby. It is the custom in Tibet to consult the lamas and astrologers before a funeral and sometimes the oracles too. The advice which was given on this occasion was that the body should not be buried but preserved, and he would then be reborn in the same house. As proof, a small mark was to be made on the body with a smear of butter. This was done and in due course my mother had another baby boy her last child. And when he was born, the pale mark was seen on the spot of his body where the butter had been smeared. He was the same being, born again in a new body to start his life afresh. In all these family matters, I was able to take some part, but I will agree that most of my time in my boyhood was spent in the company of grown-up men and there must inevitably be something lacking in a childhood without the constant company of one's mother and other children. However, even if the Potala had been a prison for me, it would have been a spacious and fascinating prison. It is said to be one of the largest buildings in the world. Even after living in it for years, one could never know all its secrets. It entirely covers the top of a hill, it is a city in itself. It was begun by a king of Tibet 1,300 years ago as a pavilion for meditation, and it was greatly enlarged by the fifth Dalai Lama, 
in the 17th century of the Christian era. The central part of the present building, which is 13 stories high, was built on his orders, but he died when the building had reached the second story. But when he knew that he was dying, he told his prime minister to keep his death a secret because he feared that if it were known that he was dead, the building would be stopped. The prime minister found a monk who resembled the Lama and succeeded in concealing the death for 13 years until the work was finished. But he secretly had a stone carved with a prayer for a reincarnation and had it built into the walls. It can still be seen on the second story today. This central part of the building contained the great halls for ceremonial occasions, about 35 chapels richly carved and painted, four cells for meditation and the mausoleums of seven Dalai Lamas, some 30 feet high and covered in solid gold and precious stones. The western wing of the building, which is of later date, housed a community of 175 monks and in the eastern wing were the government offices, a school for monk officials and the meeting halls of the National Assembly, the Houses of Parliament of Tibet. My own apartments were above the offices, on the top story, 400 feet above the town. I had four rooms there, the one which I used most often was about 25 feet square and its walls were entirely covered by paintings depicting the life of the fifth Dalai Lama, so detailed that the individual portraits were not more than an inch high. When I grew tired of my reading, I often used to sit and follow the story told by this great and elaborate mural which surrounded me. But apart from its use as office, temple, school and habitation, the Patala was also an enormous storehouse. Here were rooms full of thousands of priceless scrolls, some a thousand years old. Here were strong rooms filled with the golden regalia of the earliest kings of Tibet, dating back for a thousand years, and the sumptuous gifts they received from the Chinese or Mongol emperors, and the treasures of the Dalai Lamas who succeeded the kings. Here also was stored the armor and armament from the whole of the Tibetan history. In the libraries were all the records of Tibetan culture and religion, 7,000 enormous volumes, some of which was set to weigh 80 pounds. Some were written on palm leaves imported from India a thousand years ago. 2,000 illuminated volumes of the scriptures were written in inks made of powdered gold, silver, iron, copper, conch shell, turquoise, and coral, each line in a different ink. Down below the building, there were endless underground storehouses and cellars containing government stocks of butter, tea, and cloth which were supplied to the monasteries, the army, and government officials. At the eastern end was a prison for wrongdoers of high rank, corresponding perhaps to the Tower of London, and on the four corners of the building were defensive turrets where the Tibetan army used to keep watch. <laughs>